And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hello, I'm Matt Orsat, Senior Director of Capital Markets Policy, CFA Institute. Welcome to the Sustainability Story, a podcast hosted by CFA Institute, where we talk to thought leaders in the ESG and sustainable investor world to help investors understand the world of environmental, social, and governance investment and analysis. Today, we're talking with Deborah Gilshin, founder of the 100% Club and lead author of The Ethics of Diversity, a recent report from the UK's Institute of Business Ethics. She's been in the corporate governance game for as long as I've known her. Her 20-plus years experience has been mostly spent representing institutional investors, including RailPen, the pension fund for the UK railway system, and Aberdeen Standard Investments, the global asset manager. Deborah is an ambassador for the 30% Club, and she now runs her own advisory business, helping clients on investment stewardship strategies, ESG integration, and diversity. Thanks for joining us today, Deborah. It's good to see you again. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Today, we're going to talk about uh, diversity, diversity on boards, diversity at companies and management. Uh, and, you know, this is the, the podcast is the sustainability story. Uh, and we want to kind of frame the issue before we start for everyone with kind of a fact or a, or a number that kind of helps ground things and put them into perspective. Uh, and, and could you share that with us, kind of the number, a number you have in mind or a fact you have in mind that kind of crystallizes the issue of what we're talking about? There are so many, Matt, but one that really resonates with me is from the World Economic Forum's 2020 Gender Gap Report. And this estimated that it will take 257 years to achieve global economic gender parity. 257 years. I think we should just take a moment to think how long that is and use this as a, a way to add a sense of urgency to the work we're all doing to achieve gender equality. Uh, we simply can't afford to wait that long and we don't have 257 years to wait. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great fact. Uh, and uh, full disclosure, I knew that fact beforehand. Deborah had told it to me. So I th I've, I've thought about it a little bit. And just to, to put it in the context, you know, the United States hasn't been a country for that long. If you want to you know, think back how long that's been and how long that would be. So it really, it really highlights the urgency of what we're talking about. Um, now we want to go into a little bit about framing the larger story of the topic we're talking about. And so we, we bring experts onto the podcast so we can educate investors and our members uh, about that. And around diversity, I want to talk a little bit about, or, or I'm going to listen, Deborah's going to talk about where we've been, where we are, and where we're going on diversity. Sure. So um, I should caveat the first fact that I gave you with um, the, the obvious statement that is worth making that diversity isn't just about gender, uh, right. but women are 50% of the population. So it, it seemed like a great place to start, but obviously it, it covers all types of identity 
considerations including race, ethnicity, sexuality, neurodiversity, disability, socioeconomic background, um, as well as how we move from considerations of identity diversity towards cognitive diversity when we look at boards and, and really any team within any organisation. And I think where we've been is that we've been looking at gender, certainly here in the UK, since at least 2010, when the original Lord Davies Review into Women on Boards was published, and the 30% Club was also established by Dame Helena Morrissey. And I've been involved in the 30% Club since um, 2011, when I joined the investor group. But also now, and especially in the last um, year, year or so, a much more sense of urgency around race and ethnicity, and actually what true representation and equality looks like within society. Um, I think that there's now much more of a recognition that these issues around social injustices and inequalities are systemic and that we need systemic solutions to solve them. Just you mentioned the 30% club uh, and just want to let people know what that is. Could you describe what the 30% club is, when it started and, and kind of the progress that they've made? So the 30% Club was set up in 2010, as I said, by Dame Helena Morrissey in recognition of the lack of female representation on the boards of the largest companies listed in the, in the UK. So in 2010, if we go back to some numbers, if we look at the FTSE 100, there was 12.5% female board representation. Um, and as of April this year, according to data from the 30% Club and Boardex, that figure stood at 367 um, and so the 30% Club, as an advocacy group, as well as other interventions um, like government reviews, um, has been leading the charge in trying to increase um, female board representation and female representation more generally across executive committees and within the workforce. And they've used levers of change like the power of investor capital. Um, the 30% Club's investor group in the UK started in 2011. Uh, with 1.6 trillion in assets under management and seven members, of which RealPen, where I worked at the time, was an inaugural member. Um, and now it stands at nearly 40 investors with over 11 trillion pounds in assets under management. And I think that growth of the UK investor group of the 30% Club is indicative of um, the wider um, you know, commitment by all types of investors to the diversity agenda. Um, but also they used other levers of change like public policy, um, as well as engaging with leaders who are and are still predominantly men, so CEOs and chairs. Um, but I think the UK is an interesting market to look at because it's used a multi-stakeholder approach. It's used the power of government reviews like Lord Davies and the Hampton Alexander Review. It's used investor power. It's ad used advocacy groups like the 30% Club and other advocacy groups for other types of diversity considerations, um, as well as, um, you know, society more generally kind of understanding why this is important and we've not used legislation we don't have quotas here in the UK we've used a voluntary led target approach so it's quite an interesting example of, of progress in a in a country that hasn't had legislation. Thanks Deborah that really frames things well for us. Uh, in, in our uh, introduction to you earlier on we talked about the 100% club you found yeah. the 100% club. Yeah. So so tell us what the 100% what the Club is all about. Um, I have 
too many clubs in my life. Um, so the 100% Club is a network that I set up in 2011, um, actually in the same year that I started to work uh, specifically on, on gender diversity as, a, as an investor. Um, so it started as a network for, for female governance professionals, and it's now flourished 10 years later to a successful multi-sector alliance. And it's my contribution to retaining women in sectors challenged on gender balance. Um, encouraging women to network and giving them access to networks should be given more prominence as we strive for gender balance because access to networks is a key barrier to, to female progression and actually access to networks for all types of marginalized groups is, is a key part of how we solve um, you know, a better representation of, of everybody. Um, and I've also now built an advisory business founded on the 100% Club's values of collaboration and empowerment, because I think these, these um, values also apply to how we empower savers and investors and in the importance of collaboration in any setting. And so I try to, through the network, try to provide um, inspirational role models so that when women look up, we can see leaders and we can see people that look like us, because that's really important as well. That's great. One of the things that uh, made me think I needed to have you uh, uh, on the podcast was uh, the paper you wrote, or you, you were the lead author on, uh, that came out, I believe, in December of last year, uh, The Ethics of Diversity uh, from the UK's Institute uh, of Business Ethics. Tell us a little bit about how they came about and some of the findings in the report. Sure. So I was commissioned to write the report in January uh, of last year, um, and I'd known about the Institute of Business Ethics and um, really admired the work that they did trying to provide an ethical lens to business challenges. Um, and they very kindly commissioned me to, to, to write the report. But little did I know what lay ahead at the start of January last year and that what did lay, lie ahead would bring an urgency to the diversity agenda that I could never have imagined. Um, you know, I've been involved in diversity advocacy since 2011, but the pace of change in the last year and the evolving expectations on companies, investors and society more generally has really been unparalleled. Um, it's been fueled by you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, racial injustices, which were, have amplified existing systemic inequalities, but I think right. they were already being exposed through movements such as Me Too prior to the pandemic. So the report looks at the various ways in which we understand the business case for diversity. Um, we examine academic evidence on the governance impacts of improved board diversity, we look at the key drivers of change, which I've just discussed in, in progressing gender diversity in the UK, um, the vital role of investors and investment stewardship um, as a, as a um, lever of change, and also how boards can get ahead of the curve on all dimensions of diversity. As I've said, um, you know, we're moving outside of a, of a singular focus on gender. And we end the report with a series of practical recommendations as to how boards can embrace with cognitive and experiential diversity and unlock the sustainable business benefits from making systemic um, rather than cosmetic changes. One of the key um, uh, areas that we explore in the report is where boards you know, meet uh, diversity expectations for compliance perspectives rather than actually really right. engaging yeah. in um, you know, diversity for, in, for inclusion and really making it authentic in terms of the board appointments that they're making. Um, we look at some of the achievements um, as well as some of the gaps still in the UK, for example, 
um, all male executive committees, um, a recognition that the progress hasn't led to a sufficient representation of people of colour on UK boards, um, and also some uh, interesting um, anomalies or, or kind of insights that we explored, things like there's not enough um, female leadership in the board chair role um, right. or on committee chair roles, apart from as chairs of remuneration compensation committees um, and, and, you know, why that might be. Um, and also it hasn't really, we've not really been focusing as much as we should on private companies and smaller companies. And obviously diversity applies to all types of companies, not just large listed companies. So, and the report is freely available um, on the Institute of Business Ethics website, um, www.ibe.org.uk. Thanks. Uh, and thanks for giving all our listeners homework. I was gonna do it, but, <laughs> but you're, you're, free, you're free to do so as well. There's a shorter synopsis as well on the Harvard Law School's Corporate Governance Forum. Um, but yeah, mm -hmm. it, yeah. It, lots of external references there and we actually just had to publish at the end of December otherwise I'd still be writing it and um, providing you know external re reports because the wealth of literature in this area just continues to to grow as yeah. well yeah and, it, and one of the things while you were while you were talking I was thinking about is that to make sure this isn't just a box, box ticking exercise and just a compliance exercise and my, my previous life before I came to CFA, I was at a, a corporate governance rating firm and we, we read more proxy statements than everyone, anyone should ever have to. I think it's a form of torture in the, under the Con Geneva Conventions. But uh, I remember just reading some really interesting stories about um, boards, you know, boards putting on, and at the time it was mostly female members, uh, but it was more cosmetic, uh, literally cosmetic in one, sense I'd have to go back and look at the the data but this was in over 15 years ago a French company and I think it was uh, a, a cosmetic company or something to that effect where the chairman put his the CEO chairman put his 20-something daughter on the board uh, uh, to get uh, to bump up their female representation on the board uh, and another set of stories I remember is the the I think it was in India they passed a law or a rule uh, to have more female representation on the board, which led to a lot of CEO and chairmen just putting their wives or in more colorful uh, instances, mistresses on the board, uh, which didn't really help things. So it, it, you really need to get to the, the reason folks are doing it uh, and it needs to be beyond compliance or beyond box ticking. And I think that's where shareholder engagement and holding companies to account becomes absolutely critical as well, that you can very much tell when you are engaging with board members, including board chairs, you know, whether they really understand why this is so important and why it should be strategic and why it should be part of how they, you know, re represent inclusion within an organization, but also externally. And others that um, you know, do see this from a compliance perspective. And, you know, I really applaud the Hampton Alexander review here in the UK because they actually a couple of years ago published some of the quite frankly ridiculous excuses that serving board chairs had as to why you know they weren't progressing further on say gender diversity like this idea of um, you know I've got one woman it's someone else's turn and you know women you know 
don't understand strategy, so shouldn't be in the boardroom. I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing now, but just some really ridiculous examples. But but actually, we need to start having you know challenging questions around power and status quo and and how people get appointments because um, you know the, the whole idea of extending the pool of talent from which you choose means that you know people that have been in power and have enjoyed the status quo have to give stuff up um, and that that that's going to be difficult as well um, but I think until we have we start to have difficult conversations we won't get the the progress that that we need to see and back to your point about proxy statements um, I hear you having spent a majority of my career reading proxy statements and I always used to think I would if I was quickly trying to review a proxy statement, I always read at least the notes to the proxy statements because some of the most juiciest details yeah. and most material details are in the notes. So, uh, yeah. yeah, for our listeners that are reading proxy statements, that's a tip from me. <laughs> and, and, and during our conversation, I, I wanted to think, uh, I wanted to talk about something that, um, <clears throat> that I think you and I know because we've seen it so long, but for someone coming to the issue uh, for the first time is, kind of the, the, the academic evidence behind what we're talking about, behind why diversity is important. Uh, and I think a lot of folks think it's just a cosmetic thing. It's a nice to have thing. Oh, if we have women and minorities on the board, it makes us look good. And that's really not it at all. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, you know, about that? Uh, I'm, I'm happy to, but you're, you're the expert. Yeah, I mean, and part of the work that we did with the Institute of Business Ethics report is looking at the academic evidence, um, some of the meta studies, right. but not just focusing on corporate outperformance. Um, you know, I, I actually think that part of the business case is quite flawed because there's something deeply unethical about having to prove that some people belong and others have to kind of prove that they do. So I was really keen to explore that um, in, in the report. But also, I was really interested, I guess, from a governance perspective about how board governance improves through adding more women or, um, you know, people from different backgrounds and different ethnicities. Again, you're still having to prove that it's additive. Right. So I'm cautious about that. Um, but actually, uh, and I know there's an ongoing academic debate currently about proof points and whether... Uh, we should be looking for proof points or whether actually this is just the right thing to do, which I think hopefully most of us agree that it is, but I guess right. it's how, how we do it. So I would, I guess, point to the to a, a lot of the um, studies that I cover in the, the IBE report as a kind of a, not even just a starting point, because there are so many out there, but um, that this isn't as, I guess, conclusive as just saying, you know, this adds value. I think we need to challenge what sort of value we're looking to add and whether it's over the long term and whether it's about inclusive cultures as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I learned so much in researching the report last year and hopefully that that comes through as well. That's great. Well, let's move beyond the UK now because uh, there's a big world out there with the, the same issue. What are you seeing uh, uh, internationally, and uh, you know, pick the, the highlights of what you want to talk about of, of this issue of diversity? What's happening? Some markets have quotas, some don't. Um, just what what are you seeing? Yeah, so I mean, I was looking at some data um, for the S and P five hundred in the US, for example. I mean, we obviously don't have time to cover um, every single every single market, um, but I was looking at some data. You know, for you know the 500 largest companies in the US, and 
you know, data from Spencer Stewart that tells us, you know, in the S&P 500 female board representation, you know, in 2010 was 16%, now it's at 28% uh, as of last year. Um, the S&P 200 in terms of minority directors has gone from 15% in 2010 to 20% in 2020. That 59% of the 430 new independent S&P 500 directors appointed last year were diverse, if you take diversity to be women and minority men. Um, but the only one S&P 500 company is run by a black female CEO, and that's from data from Bank of America Global Research. Um, and, and also back to the UK, some recent research from Green Park, a consultancy here, indicated that to the, in the FTSE 100, there wasn't one black professional amongst the CEO chairs or CFO positions of the FTSE, FTSE 100. And I think um, some of those start, we, you started with asking me about a data point. Some of those you know, data points really are quite stark in what they in, indicate right. you know, where progress is being made, the pace of progress, but also a lot about where we have to still um, focus our, our attentions. Um, so... Yeah, I, I think data is so important, but it can't just be about data. It's also about the qualitative aspects of diversity and how we you know, really make change that is um, sustainable and, and systemic. There's just so much work to do um, and so much more work uh, to do on, on all of these areas. And that's only within kind of identity, diversity and representation um, as well. Well, talking about some of that work that needs to be done. Uh, this podcast is, is mainly for investors. Uh, others are, are willing, or, or others who are willing are, are happy, or are, are, we're happy to have them listen to it. Uh, I think my family and friends will probably listen to it once and then not listen to it ever again. Uh, but so as our target is mostly investors, what can investors do uh, in, in, the role, in the issue of diversity? You know, talking about investment stewardship strategies and the engagement you talked about. Sure, I mean, I've, I'm like a broken record because I've, I've said this so many times, but I think the power of investor capital here is absolutely transformational, as it is on so many uh, other um, issues um, across the, the environmental, social and governance space. I'm so interested in how investment stewardship becomes more assertive and how investors hold companies to account on any type of issues, but also these ideas of systemic stewardship and beta activism, which are now coming to the fore. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, inequalities and racism you know, represents significant systemic risks to which I think diversity is, an, is the opportunity. It's not just about risk, it's also about systemic opportunities. And I think we need system level change if we are to realize the opportunity of creating a fairer and more equitable society. So I'm interested in how we use the full rights of shareholders you know, like collaborations, you know, 30% club investor groups are now proliferating around the world. You've got a 40-40 vision initiative led by the Super Fund for the Health Industry in Australia. You have the Human Capital, Human Capital Management Coalition and the 30% Coalition in the US. So you're seeing a lot of groupings of investors. Um, although there isn't as many investor collaborations um, as we have on climate change, right, I think is quite quite interesting but also a lot of investors are now going on the record to say this is one of their key strategic stewardship priorities um, in a way that we just didn't see when I began to start engaging on diversity in 2011 through the 30% Clubs Investor Group. Um, I also think the role of activist shareholders is fascinating and how they're using diversity data to target companies that are underperforming 
Um, and also, you know, you're seeing really interesting levels, encouraging levels of support for race equity audit resolutions that have been filed at US companies and just the use of shareholder resolutions on diversity related um, you know, matters is, ju is, is just really increasing. Um, I'm also involved in a, a coalition looking at investor strategies on race equity. Um, and also what's interesting, I think, is that this isn't just manifesting itself in equity. You're seeing a lot of companies now linking their debt issuance to reflect social justice themes. Um, and also diversity targets are being incorporated into executive pay structure. So the whole remit of how investors engage on these issues is, you know, really unlimited in terms of the, the power and the influence that they can have as long as they step up and, and, and exercise that influence and power. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing to kind of observe and keep up and help clients think this through as they try and integrate diversity considerations um, into their portfolios and into their engagement strategies as well. Yeah, I think that's that's a great point uh, to end on. Just uh, and it's something that I've I've been preaching for as long as uh, people would listen to me. Uh, is engagement, I think, is really the key. Whether it's diversity or climate or whatever the issue is, uh, as you said earlier, you know, in, or, or talked about earlier, is is engaging with a, a company. You know, sitting in the room with them, you can tell whether they really get it or whether it's a box ticking exercise, a compliance exercise. Uh, and I think that's a key message for investors is to invest in that engagement aspect of, of things. Um, before before we go, uh, anything else? Uh, you know how we can how we can move forward. You talked a lot about a lot of a lot of it from the investor point of view, but how we can uh, change things, move forward. Uh, how we can make the the biggest impact in diversity. So I think we need to think about the costs of not being diverse. I think a really good place to start and how we move forward is reframing the value proposition. So rather than having to prove why gender inequalities and racial injustices need to be addressed, we should consider the social, financial, economic and reputational risks if they're not. You know, recent research from Citigroup tells us that not closing the racial inequalities gaps between black and white people has cost the US economy $16 trillion in the last 20 years. You know, there's emerging research linking sexual harassment to firm value and reputation. Diversity controversies, you know, are really impacting market and company value and they're on the rise. So I think we need to think a bit differently about um, how we think about this um, and um, how we progress. And I do believe that finance has such a powerful role in being part of the solution to some of the systemic risks that society faces but it really has to rise to the challenge. Thanks, that's great. Now we'll end, we'll end things a little bit lighter. Uh, um, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, maybe I should admit that in my own podcast. Uh, but one of the things from one of the ones I listen to that I think find really uh, useful is, what are you reading now? You know, it could be something silly. It could be something on this topic, but to give our listeners, we already gave them homework re reading your report. <laughs> Uh, but to give give them a little bit uh, more edification uh, through something that you you or I recommend that they should read. So I'll, I'll I'll let you go first. So, 
currently I, I've got two books on the go. One is called Whose Story Is This by Rebecca Solnit. Um, I'm such a fan of, of Rebecca Solnit and her writing since I first read her essay, Men Explain Things To Me. She's so eloquent in how she writes about issues around gender, race, representation, climate change, finding hope in the dark and how we should all have our voices heard. Um, I've read a lot of her work and I would highly recommend it. And then I've also just started um, The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells. It's a story about climate change written by uh, Wallace Wells from The New Yorker. I've only just started it, but I'm already hooked because the urgency with which she writes is so necessary for all of us to understand why climate change is also um, everyone's problem. Yeah, yeah, you may you may not want to keep reading that one. I've I've read that and it's 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 not a happy story in the end. But that, that's a whole other podcast that, that we'll get to. <laughs> we'll get to. Um, I, I didn't have one to, to I wasn't going to make a re recommendation, but uh, I hadn't really thought about it. But the, the report you mentioned from Citigroup that came out last year, I forget the title of it, but but look for, uh, you know, it came out late last year uh, and it's racial equity and the co its cost from Citigroup. And it's a great report. Uh, and maybe I'll add it in the post notes. I'll, I'll look up, I'll look it up and, and add it. Uh, but thank you, Deborah. Thank you for your time. I hope everybody uh, got something from this. Uh, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in person at a conference, maybe later this year or early next year. It's been a long time. Thank you, Matt. And thank you, the CFA Institute, for the invitation. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.